a well-known author and speaker, came to Grace giving a seminar entitled Parenting Adult Children. Catherine's here this morning. There were some very tender moments as she unveiled her story and helped us become more self-aware and more aware of the larger God story. She spoke about expectations we parents lay upon our adult children, about giving our kids room to figure things out, to discover who really God is, and realizing that we can love our children and not necessarily agree with them. The good news is that Catherine will be here in the Grace Cafe at 1045, just room 114, and to answer any questions you may have about parenting. So you can just pack the room out and bring all your questions. So you come on in. Tomorrow, she's going to be speaking seven principles of regret-free parenting beginning at 9 o'clock in the chapel. So if you're interested, you can sign up this morning and like as many to come as can. Mops will be hosting. We also welcome Scott Avey. Yeah, Scott was raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not far from here, and is the son of Tom Avey, who is our fellowship coordinator. Scott and I took a hike up Gambrel Mountain, not 15 miles, just three yesterday on the Black Trail. Scott's in very good shape. <laughs> took a tour of the area uh, with Jim and was interviewed by our elders and um, their wives and the search committee yesterday. God has put an anointing upon Scott. There is a depth to his soul. Though our relationship is young, I believe that Scott would be very good for us, and I believe that we as a church could be very good for he and his family. So I believe our church is craving worship. Thank you, Scott, for bringing it with the team. How y'all doing? Yeah? Yeah, I agree with your son, Scott, about God not having arms, you know, but with an outstretched arm, he delivered his people from bondage. And with an outstretched arms, Jesus delivered us from sin. And now we get to be his arms. And we get to be his feet. We are the body of Jesus. You have a Bible, open up to Acts, the 17th chapter, to Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill. A classic example of how to engage this world. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of something. The city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The heart of the Apostle Paul for the city, we see, was provoked. Because he was a man of action, he believed that every person in that city mattered to God. He engaged with religious people and non-religious people. But he was very distressed because the city was full of idols. Paul is an example to us of a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, looking for opportunities, being intentional and missional with his um, journey. We'll encounter different people with different philosophies. And one of the questions we're going to ask is, what is the culture we're facing? What are the people, what is the perspective we're trying to reach? In America, we'll find people with different philosophies, different political and economic philosophies. Just watch a debate on, in Congress between the different philosophies. Views on how to stimulate the economy. Views on how to put America back to work. Views on how to reform the tax code. Views on how to deal with the illegal immigrants. There's different educational philosophies in America. Talk to educators about their views on no child left behind. 
talk to them about how to improve our schools and our students, especially in the areas of math and science and technology, to help our students compete in a 21st century environment. There's different parenting philosophies. In this room, there are probably all different kinds of parenting philosophies, different views upon permissiveness or discipline. If your kids are involved with teams, there's different coaching philosophies. I was hearing uh, the Redskins coach last night espouse some of his coaching philosophy. You know, Pastor Mike says that the eagles are in the Bible because we'll rise up on wings like eagles. But I also believe the Redskins are in the Bible because the Bible says God is near the brokenhearted. (laughs) And to be a Redskins fan is experience sure heartache. There's different lifestyle philosophies in America, different views on how we live our lives So we come with a different worldview. Our worldview is driven by values and by beliefs. In this town, at least, there's two identifiable worldviews, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They began to debate with him. In your office, there'll be all different kinds of worldviews. In your school, all different kinds of perspectives. This is an example of how to engage people with their different worldviews. What are the philosophies? Here's a question to contemplate for a moment. What are the philosophies we are encountering in the marketplace? First off, Epicureanism. According to Epicurus, the chief goal of an Epicurean is to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and to avoid pain. We use Epicurean to refer to a person who has a refined and discriminating taste, a connoisseur of good food and wine. I remember being in Barcelona, Spain, Debbie and I, and we were there with a gentleman and his wife who knew of my father, who was a commander of a base over there. And so we were eating dinner together. We went to a very fine restaurant where, you know, it served all kinds of wines. And this guy was a food critic for Air France. And um, I was curious to find what a connoisseur would order in a place like this. You know, this was a restaurant where there were no price, prices on the menu. So he ordered for his first course cold soup, um, vegetable soup, um, gazpacho. And then for his main course, he ordered steak tartare, raw steak with pepper on top. And I said, that's your dinner? But here was a a connoisseur, an Epicurean, a man with discriminate tastes. And I was luxuriating the other foods, but he was eating cold soup and raw steak. The motto of the Epicureans was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They lived as if there was no tomorrow. This life is all there is. If it feels good, just do it. If it doesn't feel good, just stay away from it. There are plenty of people living in America with an Epicurean philosophy of pleasure first and avoid the pain. Here's an Epicurean phrase. Life is too short for bad beer. So enjoy yourself because this life is all there is. You see, this life, the Epicureans believe, is the only existence there is. There is no God, there is no afterlife, and there is no purpose to this life. This life is meaningless. Therefore, in existential despair, you must find all the pleasure you can in this life. 
it kind of takes over into a consumer mindset. In America, there's sort of a consumerism. We're identified as being consumers, those who sell and buy. You know, already Black Friday, the advertisers are out. I was talking to the CFO of Best Buy, and he was telling me that 70% of Best Buy's sales happen between Thanksgiving and the end of January. 70% of our gross national product has to do with consumer sales. You see, in America, we want to find the shiniest, the newest, the best. My iPad is not good enough, so I need an iPad 2. Or my iPad 2 is not good enough, I need an iPad 3. I'm not really satisfied with my 3G network, I need a 4G network. You see, Americans overall are not very content. They're very dissatisfied. And they're looking for something that will satisfy their soul. And there were people walking through that city who were Epicureans whose souls were never satisfied with the pleasures because these, these pleasures were never satisfying their soul. But there was another philosophy of the day, the Stoics. These group of philosophers were founded by, the name, by a man named Zeno. These were pantheists who believed that everything is God. Their attitude toward life was just resignation. Since I can't control what's going to happen because the gods are in control. They prided themselves on a fatalistic endurance of hardship without complaint or self-pity. Let me ask you a question. If you were to identify your own philosophy, would you say it's more Epicurean? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Or would you say it's more Stoic? We just sort of resign ourselves to endure life without self-pity or without complaint. Paul was engaging these people day after day in the marketplace. You see, their philosophies could never satisfy their souls. And we're told to not be held captive by the different philosophies of this world, to take on a Christian worldview. And these people began to criticize him, insult him, saying, what would this seed picker have to say to us? Now, a seed picker is someone who is like a babbler, someone who's picked up an idea from some other place and brought it now to Athens. They were insulting him. But as he walked around, he saw all these various idols. Verse 22 says, And then he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around your city... I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I found even an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What do you see when you walk around your city? A couple of years ago, I was traveling over to Bangui, Central African Republic. And we were laid over in Paris, a great place to be laid over in. And we took a walk through the city. We had about 12 hours. And of course, Paris is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. There were, you know, walkways over the Seine. There was um, vendors selling roses. We walked by the Arc de Triomphe. We walked under the Eiffel Tower. We walked into the Notre Dame and into the Louvre. And I was surprised, this was what surprised me about Paris, at how many Muslims and mosques were in the city. You could actually feel, as you walk through Paris, the oppression on the city, the darkness of the city. 
Even in a sacred place like Notre Dame, there was still a heavy Muslim presence that was there. There were woman, women in the burqas, and they were walking through the streets, a heavy presence of Muslims in mosques in Paris. And then we arrived in Bangui, and I walked around the city there. And Bangui is one of the poorest cities in the world. And one of the things I saw there was not the beautiful roses of Paris, but I saw the flower arrangements on the sidewalk. And I asked, what are these arrangements for? And I was told they're for the funeral that will be happening this day. You see, in that land, there's 38% of the population that's died of HIV-AIDS. And I saw the orphans walking through the city streets. And some of these precious children were selling cell phones and selling oranges. Some of them were selling themselves. And all of them were trying to survive. What do you see when you walk through the city? Tell me about the faces of the people you see in your city. Frederick is known for its spires. There are so many people in our city. There's families in our city. There's broken people in our city. There's poor people in our city. What do you see when you walk through the streets of your city? As Paul walked through the streets of Athens, he saw people that were in bondage to different gods. They worshipped various idols. Idols had captivated their hearts. They did not know the true and living God. They were worshipping false gods. And these false gods could never satisfy them. There was a craving in their soul for something else. Now, Paul did not denounce the Athenians for their idolatry. In fact, he complimented them for being interested in spiritual things. He said, I walked around your city, and I see that you're a very religious people. Religion here is a compound word meaning God-fearing. He's not saying they feared the one and true living God. He's saying they feared the lesser spirits. They were afraid that if they'd forgotten to build a shrine or a temple to this unknown God, this God would be unhappy with them. You see, they were afraid of the gods turning against them, of sickness, disease, and death overtaking them. They were afraid of their own futures. He said, I see that you built an altar to an unknown God. This unknown God is the very one I came to tell you about. I've come to tell you about a God you have unknowingly and ignorantly worshipped. You see, if we do not know the true and living God, there is no end to our search. Paul understands the spiritual anguish of crying out to a God that does not exist, who can never satisfy the soul. So in what ways does God reveal himself to us? I find at least five things here in the sermon at Mars Hill that begin at verse 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth. The first thing that God reveals to us is that he is the creator. God who made the world and everything in it. Here Paul unveils a profound and startling truth that there are not many gods, but there is only one God. And our God is greater, and our God is higher, and our God is stronger, and our God is healer, and our God is restorer. He is the maker of all things. God was not created by man, 
and, but man was created by God. That God is the source and the originator of all things. So when you see the yellow sun and you eat the yellow snapper and you take your yellow banana, do you ever wonder who made it? When you see the blue sky and you uh, hear the sound of the blue whale and you experience the blue sea, do you ever wonder who created it? And when you see the green mountain and you eat the green avocado, well, it actually turns kind of brown, and you drink the green tea for your health, do you ever wonder who fashioned these beautiful things? When you see the hummingbird suspended in flight, when you see the V-shape of the geese flying south, when you look outside and you see the sugar maple on this campus in all of its glory ablazing, do you see the hand of your Creator? God has not left Himself without witness. God has left the testimony of Himself of what He has made, and I declare to you that God is Creator. The way that God reveals himself to us is, first of all, that God is the creator and we are the creation. That God is the maker and we are the made. That God is the designer and we are designed in his likeness and his image. God designed us to walk with him and talk with him. God designed us to know him and be known by him. That God is creator. Secondly, that God is omnipresent. He does not live in temples built by human hands. We cannot confine God to space or a place. He is not served by human hands. We do not make our gods out of silver or gold. We do not carve an image made by man's design and skill and becomes God. You see, God is everywhere, and God is here. They in that city of Athens took a beautiful woman, and they carved her image, and they called her Athena, and they made her the patron saint of their city, and they called her their goddess, the goddess of wisdom and of intelligence. Our God also gives wisdom to those who ask of him. Paul was declaring that God himself is omnipresent. You see, Jesus would say that the presence of the Lord was here to heal. God is present with his people when we gather together. And thirdly, God is self-sufficient, as if he needed anything. You see, God who was is God who is, is God who is yet to come. I cannot offer to anything to God that would enhance him. I cannot take anything away from God that would detract from him. He is. God has a voluntary relationship to everything. He has a necessary relationship to nothing. In other words, when we come to worship before this God, God is not codependent upon us. It's not as if God needs us for anything. The truth is that we need God for everything. That our God is self-sufficient, and our God is creator, and our God is omnipresent, and our God is our sustainer. It says he gives all men their life and breath and everything else. When's the last time you thank God for your life or for the breath that you breathe or everything else he bestows upon you? In the very beginning, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. It's not that we provide for God. It is that God provides for us. 
the oxygen necessary for us to breathe. He provides for us the sunshine, the rain for things to grow. It's God who gives to us our daily supply. I was with a person not long ago who was homeless, and she was eating her bowl of chili. And she was so thankful to God for that supply. She said, my God in heaven has supplied me. We gave thanks to God for that simple bowl of chili. How often we grouse and complain about a bowl of chili. But here is a dear woman thanking God for this provision. God is our sustainer. He sustains us through the hard times, the barren places, when life is really rough, when we receive that doctor's report, when we get the call from that creditor. You see, God is the one who sustains his people, that though we walk through the waters, he is with us. And our God is sovereign. He says, from one man, he made every nation of men. The one man's name was Adam that they should inhabit the entire earth. All seven billion people on this planet came from one man, from Adam. We are Adam's children. We are born in Adam. And our father tried to hide himself from God. He tried to cover himself up from God. He even blamed his wife for his sin. And he determined the very times set for us. You see, Athens herself was in the late afternoon of her glory. Athens may be like our country. There was a time when Athens was great. In the 5th century, um, it was the birthplace of democracy. It was a place where there was beautiful architecture. The uh, theater came out of Athens, drama and comedy. They had great philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. You remember back in the philosophy class about Plato's cave and about Socratic method and about Aristotelian ethics? Well, all of that came out of Greece. The Olympics came out of Greece. But now Athens was beginning to diminish in her glory. It still was an intellectual capital where scholars would come and study. But Athens had begun to diminish in her glory. You see, it's God who has fixed the times in which we live. We are living in times that God is sovereign over. We're living in a global age now, an information age. Catherine was sharing yesterday about her son who had moved to Singapore, and he had a girlfriend in the States. And they were watching a pastor's sermon online, and then they would do a Bible study with each other. And though she was here in the States, and he was in Singapore, and the pastor was preaching... They were able to connect together through the use of technology. And over the course of time, the girlfriend got saved. You see, God has determined the times in which we live. We're living in a time of globalization, a time when information technology is making communications easier. And he has determined the times in which we live. So why did God do all of this? Why does God reveal, or how does God reveal himself to us? God did this, verse 27, that men may seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, that God is near unto us. 
that God is near to us when we pray to him. He draws near to us. When we draw near to him, God draws near to us. You see, Paul knew the culture so very well. He's actually citing something from Homer, a Greek poet, and a well-known story of Cyclops. Now, when you were growing up, do you ever call yourself Cyclops? Maybe there was a problem on your face. Well, the great giant Cyclops had captured Odysseus and his men. Odysseus had gotten Cyclops drunk and then blinded him with a sharp stake. The epic hero then wanted to sneak out of the cave where he and his men were hiding and being held. But it was difficult because Cyclops was groping around, feeling after Odysseus, that he may find him and kill him. And what he was doing here was he's likening this Greek story to the story of mankind. You see, we have become blinded. We are darkened in our understanding, and we cannot see God. We're groping around in this world trying to find him. God is invisible to us, and things are happening to us. We have to ask this question, why are these things happening to us? Why are these hardships coming into our life? Why are we facing this trial? Why are we going through this difficult ordeal? All of this is that we might seek after God and find him. For if you seek after God with all of your heart, you're going to find him. And even though it may seem dark, it may be difficult to find him. If you seek after him with all of your heart, you're going to find him. And then Paul quotes a couple of their poets. He talks about the fact that we are his offspring. And then he comes to the conclusion of his talk. And he says these words in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now before we talk about what this is meaning, let's talk for a moment about repentance. Repentance has to do with changing the mind, changing the mindset. Suppose I were to tell you something that's true about you, but you were believing something about yourself that isn't true. Would you be willing to change your mind. Let's say, for instance, you have sinned, and all of us have sinned. And let's say that you walk through this world with guilt and shame and condemnation. Let's say this week you were in a battle with sin, and you succumb to that sin. Let's say there's a pattern in your life where you find yourself powerless in the face of sin. Let's say there's an addiction that you're dealing with. And let's say you feel yourself powerless to overcome this addiction. You feel powerless to overcome your past. You believe that sin has the upper hand upon you. You believe that you need to submit yourself to this sin. You need to follow after this sin. This sin has begun to rule your life. What if I were to tell you there's a power greater than the power of sin? What if I were to tell you about a cross where Jesus Christ died for your sin? What if I were to tell you about an empty tomb where Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to overcome the power of sin? What if I were to tell you that you can become free from the power of sin? You see, God calls us each one to repent, which means to change our mind, to change our mindset. 
And there's three reasons why God does this. The first of them is that God is patient with us. Of all the beautiful qualities of God, a beautiful one is his patience. God is patient with us. He is patient with you. In the past, he overlooked our sin. But now he commands us to do something about it, to break union with that sin, to confess that sin to him and find freedom from that sin. He commands us because there's coming forth a day of judgment. The day of judgment is when God will open the books and each will be judged for according to what they've done. You see, for us, we can believe that Jesus took our place upon a cross bearing the judgment of a holy God where our sin is transferred from us to him and his righteousness is transferred from him to us where we can bear the very judgment of God. Jesus Christ is the Savior. In him there is salvation. You see, our Savior is able to move a mountain because the mountain is our sin. But when that sin is cast upon him, the, the mountain moves from us into the very sea, the sea of God's forgetfulness. Come on back up, Scott. We're going to invite our prayer warriors to be available to you. And I don't know what you're grappling with. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what the battle in your soul is. But I know we all need prayer. And prayer begins the conversation with God. God, you are stronger. God, you are bigger. You're bigger than the problem I'm facing. You're bigger than the sin I am struggling with. God, you're able to deliver me. God, you're able to save me. God, you're able to draw near unto me. Because you are a sovereign God. And you're an all-sufficient God. Pray with me, would you please? Father, here we are in your very presence. And we're listening to a sermon that was preached 2,000 years ago in a city much like ours, with people much like us, embracing different philosophies, walking in darkness. And there you are, Lord, shining light in the midst of the darkness, inviting us to walk into freedom, revealing yourself to us as our creator, as our sustainer, as a sovereign God. That if we simply will search for you, we will find you. And when we find you, we'll find freedom. And we'll find the power that sets our lives free. Jesus, thank you for coming to set the captives free. And I pray that, Lord, this morning, you might set some captives free. Lord, in your presence, may we be bold enough to admit the truth. May we ask you, Lord, for help. May you come near to your people, Lord. May this be a beautiful morning of release as we just let go of that which has been hanging over our souls. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? And again, there's prayer warriors all around the room.